Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Well, thank you. Would you please turn your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 21? And while you're turning there, let me tell you how overjoyed I am to be here at one of my favorite places on the planet. Uh, I always come away from here refreshed and, uh, and, and overjoyed with seeing what the Spirit is doing with this administration, with this faculty, with this student body, with the way that Southeastern uh, not only serves as a Great Commission-focused seminary, but focuses the entire rest of the church on the Great Commission. So it's a joy to be here. First Kings chapter 21, I'd like for us to read in verse 1. I want us to read all the way down through the end of this chapter, First Kings 21. And since these words are breathed out by the Holy Spirit and come with the exact authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, speaking them to us himself, would you please stand with me out of reverence for the word of the living God? The Holy Spirit says this. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near to my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give to you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give to you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and he turned away his face and he would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered me, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful, and I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him saying, you have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city, and they stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. And as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, for he refused to give you, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. 
And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. But then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go and meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up. I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days. I will bring the disaster upon his house. May God bless his word to us today. You may be seated. Years and years ago when I was serving in youth ministry, I had just finished teaching a lesson that was very evangelistically focused in its theme. And afterward, a teenage young woman walked up to me and said very casually and nonchalantly, hey, I wanna make an appointment with you to get baptized. There was something in just the casual nature with which she said this that I, I wanted to, to find out what was happening here. And so I said, well, tell me, why do you want to be baptized? She said, well, you know, I was baptized when I was a baby in a Catholic church. And then a few years later, I was baptized again in a Lutheran church. And then when I was five, I was baptized after a vacation Bible school at a Pentecostal church. And then when I was 10, I was baptized in a Mormon church. And she goes, this entire list of encounters with water in, in all sorts of, of churches. And she said, you know, the way I look at it, nobody really knows which of these religions is right. And so I want to make sure that if after death I am standing before God, I'm able to have all of it covered. So I want your baptism to go with all the other baptisms that I have. And I said, I'm not going to baptize you. Instead, I want to talk to you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I started talking about faith in Jesus, about repentance of sin, and repentance of sin is what really started to agitate her. And she said, wait, 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 wait. I don't think you understand what I'm asking for. 
She said, here's the deal that I'm looking for. I wanna be able to get drunk on the weekends, smoke a little weed, have sex with whoever I want to, and go to heaven. And I said, the book of Romans says that's the deal everybody's looking for in the flesh. But that's the deal that Jesus Christ crucified in his own death, burial, and resurrection. And the word that the Lord gives to you now is repent of your sin, put your trust in Jesus Christ, and walk in newness of life following him. Now, as I thought about what it was that she was saying to me, I started to realize that what she was asking for isn't all that unusual. As a matter of fact, for many, many years, there were people who would be teaching exactly that sort of understanding of salvation, which is to say, salvation is just about a momentary acceptance of the facts of the gospel, and then whatever happens after that is of no account in terms of one's eternal destiny. It has something to do with the rewards. It's not the best way to live. But as, as one preacher put it, if one of the September the 11th suicide bombers, hijackers, had for a nanosecond believed in Christ in a Sunday school classroom at the age of five, and then returned to Islam and to radical Islam and lived out the rest of his life in murderous rage against people and against the things of God, that person is still to be counted as a brother in Christ at his death. This view was rigorously countered and rightly so. And it seems to have all sorts of biblical warrant behind it. Because someone can say, salvation is not of works, salvation is of grace. And so if you talk about obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, this is legalism, this is moralism, this is something other than the gospel. Because the gospel is by free grace, then the gospel has nothing to do with how you then repent of sin and live. It's an argument that the New Testament completely demolishes. As the Apostle Paul, for instance, deals both with those who would say the gospel is faith and, and also those who would say, let us sin all the more that grace may abound. Neither of those things are consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ, in which we do not work our way into acceptance before God, but when we are received by God, the transforming power of the Spirit means that we live out a life of ongoing repentance before God. We fail, we fall, we stumble, but we have a shepherd who constantly brings us back. That question of whether or not salvation of Jesus requires lordship is something that in many ways has kind of gone away, at least at the, the arguing level, but it still shows up in all sorts of places because there are many people who would like to have a micro-targeted no-lordship salvation. And so you may say, for instance, let's not talk about 
what the Bible teaches about sexuality. What the Bible teaches about sexuality is controversial. What the Bible teaches about sexuality is difficult. Let's pay no attention to that. Or even let's come in and reinterpret the Bible in a way in which I can claim that Jesus says to me, go and live your life sexually whatever way you want. Or there are those who will say, the Bible doesn't speak to an entire array of issues that we can simply set aside as social. One group of people will say, how dare you talk to me about personal morality? What I do privately is no business of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And another group of people will say, how dare you talk to me about issues that I want to classify as social justice because the gospel has nothing to say about the way that we live together in groups. Neither of those two things are consistent with what the Bible teaches. And you'll notice in this passage that we just read some moments ago, an example of something that happened when a king comes and says to a man whose name we otherwise would never know. There would, apart from the scriptures, be no archeological monuments to Naboth and Jezreel. There would be no epic synodices devoted to this simple farmer in Jezreel. But he had a vineyard, a vineyard that had been passed down to him by his ancestors. And Ahab, the king of Israel, wants to have that vineyard. He, he wants to have sort of eminent domain where he can take over that vineyard in order to build a vegetable garden for himself, to expand his territory and to expand his palace. This is nothing unusual. This happens all the time. A king has power. A king is a powerful person. A peasant farmer is not. There is an entire system and structure of power here where either you matter or you don't. And yet, even as typical as this situation would be, the Scripture tells us that God is paying attention. And God is paying attention to such an extent that notice this one simple, no-name no farmer takes down a dynasty. Why? Because God sends a word through Elijah the prophet to say what has happened here does not escape the notice of God. There are several questions that emerge in this situation. I want us to think about them this morning. First one is this, who is my neighbor? Naboth is of no account, is somebody who has no power, relatively. Naboth is somebody who could easily be kept invisible. In the same way that so many times 
the scripture gives to us examples of people that are easy to keep invisible, to pay no attention to at all. Exactly what Jesus is dealing with when he's speaking to the lawyer who says to him, I want to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want to love my neighbor as myself. But let me put a little asterisk here. Let me put a little footnote here and ask you, who is my neighbor? And Jesus responds with a story of a man beaten on the side of the road. A man, it would be very easy to simply say, pay no attention to him. That's that's not our problem. We're going to walk forward. And yet Jesus says, if God has called you to love neighbor as yourself, then you define neighbor by God's terms, not by those of your herd or your tribe. Be very, very easy. When Elijah comes forward and says to Ahab, why have you taken this land? Why have you murdered this man? To say, this is a zoning issue. This is not a matter of some sort of vigilante murder. This is, as a matter of fact, an act of the government in dealing with someone who has been convicted of a crime. And yet Elijah stands and says, God hears and God knows what has been done to this man. That is a theme that goes on over and over and over and over in Scripture. So that God is able to say to his people, you Don't hear the cries of the orphans, but their Redeemer is strong and He hears them. You don't hear the cries of those who are being plowed under with their faces ground into the ground, as Isaiah puts it, but God hears them. And as we live carrying about our mission of the church, there is always going to be the pressure to make certain people invisible to us, the unborn, the elderly person who is shut in, the orphans, the widows, the poor, that woman who is being trafficked or that woman who is being assaulted or abused. The scripture says that if we are the people who are being governed and directed by the word of God, then we care about what Jesus cares about and we care about who Jesus cares about. Who is my neighbor? Second question is this, what is right? What is right? Ahab here is someone who is a really pathetic, pouty figure, standing around passively, aggressively, saying to his wife, well, I've tried to get that vineyard, and he just said no, and so what am I gonna do? And what does she do? She comes in and says, well, what about your power? Use your power. And what does Jezebel do? She sets up an entire structure here in order to get what it is that Ahab wants. And she does it by bringing together witnesses. 
She does it by applying the law as it is written, but applying it in a way that is meant not to maintain order, but is meant to destroy. Now, it would be easy to say, if you're looking at this, well, you know, let's not focus on that. Let's simply focus on the issue of idolatry. Let's not talk about this issue because this issue is a matter of, you know, social justice or something that wild people out there are going to care about, not what we should care about. Well, social injustice could include the crucifixion of an innocent man. Social injustice could include thousands and thousands and thousands of things that God says to his people and to the nations around them are bringing them into judgment. The question is, what is right as defined by God, not what is right as defined by my interests at the time? As a matter of fact, the scripture says that when it comes to evil and unrighteousness, the problem for us is not just those things that we do, although those are problematic, but also those things, Romans chapter one, of which we give hearty approval. So that when you think about the way that God speaks to his people, he doesn't make those neat little categorizations that we like to make between my personal morality and my public morality, between personal unrighteousness and public injustice. These are all mixed in together so that the prophets are able to say, you are the people who worship other gods, and you are the people who commit sexual immorality, and you are the people who sell the poor for a price of shoes. And unless you might think, well, yes, but that's the Old Testament. When we come into the New Testament, we have some sort of pre-tribulational rapture of the conscience. No, no, no because the same exact principle applies. James is able to say, you are to remain unspotted from the world, which has to do with your tongue, the way that you talk, and caring for widows and orphans in their distress. You are to follow the way of Christ, which means you are to take no thought for tomorrow in your own life, and you should understand that God hears the cries of the workers in your fields that you're exploiting. Both of those things. That's easy to say, well, yeah, but God doesn't, God doesn't care about this. God doesn't, God doesn't understand these things. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't really pay much attention to these things because if we do, what we're going to end up doing is becoming uh, enamored with a kind of social gospel. Of course, you could. Yeah, the social gospel used to say that the message of the Bible is not that people should become born again one by one by one, but that if you improve the structures of society, you can bring in the kingdom of God. That's not something we haven't encountered before. That's exactly the danger when it comes to personal morality as well. There are some people who believe if I act morally enough, 
I'm going to become acceptable before God. Moralism and legalism. The answer, though, to moralism is not immorality. The answer to moralism is a gospel of Jesus Christ that informs you who you are and then directs you what it means to live out your life glorifying to Jesus Christ. Elijah stands here before Ahab and he says, God sees you, God knows, and notice what is perhaps the biggest tragedy of this entire thing is that Jezebel not only does what is wrong, but she does what is wrong in the name of God. We will take the book of Deuteronomy and we'll make sure we have two witnesses. We'll take the word of God and we'll make sure that what we're saying is that he's a blasphemer, that he has cursed God. We will make sure that as we are doing what is wrong, we have the cover of the Bible and the cover of religion. That is blasphemy. And it is a blasphemy that we have seen over and over and over again. People in our own denomination once spent a lot of time teaching enslaved peoples the Bible. But what they're teaching them is simply obey your masters. And why? Because what they were worried about is controlling an unjust system. And to stand up and say, not only are we for the kidnapping, raping, and enslaving of people, but Jesus is too. In our own country, at a time when the laws of the land were saying that some people are less than human and can be treated in whatever way the law deems to be right, Many, many, many churches, not all, but many churches stood back and said, this is not something that Jesus cares about at all. At a time when in many of our churches, there are people whose lives have been shredded apart by abuse, it's very easy to simply say, This is a distraction. At a time when unborn children are imperiled and threatened, it is very easy to make sure that if I'm in a place where that's going to be unpopular, I leave them invisible. And I can even use the Word of God to try to justify that to myself. And the problem is that not only does God know what is going on with that, so does the world. And what they see in that is that you do not really have a word from God. You are not really ambassadors of a message that you have received. Instead, you are taking whatever the status quo is that you want and simply attaching Bible verses to that. And they're able to recognize a human religion when they see it. What is right? 
propping up immorality and injustice because we want to shield our consciences from judgment or because we're afraid of those who do. That's not what Jesus has called us to. But notice, finally, it's not just who is my neighbor and what is right, but also this question of what is the gospel? Elijah, coming with the word of God, delivers a word of judgment. God sees this. God is going to take you down. And notice what happens at the end. There's not heart repentance, but there's a temporary suspension of doom. Here, God says, I'm not going to immediately deal out judgment upon Ahab. The message that Elijah is giving is a message that ultimately is of good news and of grace, but it is a good news and a grace that comes through a message of judgment. It's easy to say, well, let's, we don't need to talk about those things because those things aren't what the gospel is. Sexual morality is not what the gospel is. Marital fidelity is not what the gospel is. You are not justified by your sexual purity. You are not justified by your marital fidelity. You are not justified by your service to the church. But if you say, I will follow Jesus, but I will not follow him towards sexual purity. I will follow Jesus, but I will not follow him toward marital fidelity. You may be following somebody else. The message that is here comes in and says, God has repeatedly told us what grace is, and grace means the forgiveness of sin, and then the Bible defines what sin is. Those who blaspheme are sinners. Those who lie are sinners. Those who, as the scripture says, justify the wicked or condemn the righteous are sinners. Scripture speaks to all of those aspects of us. Does the Bible speak exhaustively? No. Do we have the answer to every sort of question that we may have when it comes to human need around us? No, of course not. We don't have an exhaustive list of things as it applies to personal morality either. There are some things that the Bible speaks to directly. There are some things that the Bible speaks to in terms of principles that are then going to be applied in different ways. There are some things that the Bible says we're not going to speak to at all. Leave it to the individual conscience whether or not you eat only vegetables or eat meat. But you cannot say, well, on the basis of Romans 14, it doesn't matter how many girlfriends I have in addition to my wife. Leave it to the individual conscience. No, 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 no. The Bible has spoken to that. And what am I trying to do when I do otherwise? It is to hide from the interrogating word of God. The way that we get to an announcement of good news is by coming in and saying, we recognize and we understand that following Jesus means that we are shaping and forming our conscience about what is wrong. Individually with my life, I am a man of unclean lips. 
with the world that I'm embedded in and I am of a people of unclean lips. And it means seeking to follow Jesus even though I'm going to fall, I'm going to fail, I'm going to make, dis- make mistakes. But what I never do is to say, let me do immorality that grace may abound. Or let us do injustice so that we do not distract from the gospel. That is not the message that we have been given. And that's precisely what the lawyer who comes before Jesus in Luke 10 is asking. Scripture says that he is seeking to justify himself by saying, what does it really mean to love neighbor? Because I want to make sure that my neighbor is categorized in a way that doesn't cause me harm. And so some people will say, let's talk about the Word of God, what it means to follow Jesus, but let's not talk about sexual morality. We don't want to alienate millennials. Let's not talk about unborn children. I don't want to have to deal with the questions that come up from that. Or let's not talk about what is happening to black and brown people in my neighborhood because people will become angry with me. And people on all of those sides will all say the same thing. Why are you interfering in something that is none of your business? Goodbye, Jericho Road. That's not the message that we've been given. The gospel is a gospel, Paul says, of both justice and justification. Jesus does not free us to live out lives satanically, but frees us in order to reshape us into people who care about the things that he cares about. And that includes the weak, that includes the orphaned, that includes the widowed, that includes the unborn, that includes the orphan, that includes the oppressed, that includes the people that someone will say to you, you can talk about love in the abstract. You can talk about justice in the abstract, but don't you talk about them. Ahab himself will try this later on. No, what we've been given is a gospel that says the blood of Jesus forgives you of sin. The blood of Jesus forgives you of sin not because God has accommodated himself to our lackadaisical understandings of unrighteousness and injustice, but because God has even higher standards than we do and has crucified the law at the cross. That does not then leave us to walk out of the baptismal waters saying, let me go find evil to do, or let me say this particular set of evils might distract me. Beaten man on the side of the road distracts you. But you might just see Jesus there. We didn't learn that from a politician. We didn't learn that from a movement. 
We learned that from the gospel, the gospel according to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for the men and women in this room. Many of them are going to be leaving this place, going into very, very difficult situations. Some of them are going to be in places of the world where people are literally starving to death. Some of them are going to be in communities where women around them are going to be kidnapped and trafficked through strip clubs and pornography industries. Some of them, Lord, are going to be in communities that are riddled with racism, bigotry, partiality. And Lord, all of us are going to be those who are called to have the courage to stand only before the judgment seat of Christ. Lord, would you give them that courage? Would you give them that ability to be shaped and formed in the conscience and then to point others in the same way? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.